everyone, and welcome to our first Big Read podcast. I'm Erica Gottfriedson, and I am here with Naram Kim and Vanessa Ayakoka. Today, we're going to be discussing the similarities and the differences between Spinning Silver, which was originally written as a short story, and then later as a novel. So we'll be discussing the similarities and differences between those two texts. So what I'm going to ask my friends here to do is to first introduce themselves by giving us their name, uh, their year in graduate school, all three of us are PhD students, and then also their relationship to the short story. I'll round us off uh, and then we'll move into our discussion for today. So Naram, would you uh, open us up, please? Sure. Hi, I'm Naram and I'm a third year a PhD student in the English department. And Last year, I read this novel, Spinning Silver, in a course while I was prepping to teach literature in college. And just recently, I read the short story, and I found it really interesting to go from the novel to the short story. So I'm really excited for our conversation today. Awesome. Welcome. All right, Vanessa, how about you? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Vanessa. I'm a fourth year PhD student in the English department as well. And I get to teach Spinning Silver in my science fiction and fantasy literature course this semester. Um, we're in the middle of, of going over it actually uh, this week. So uh, I'm really excited to get to talk about some of the themes that we've already been uh, covering. In particular, we've been focusing on medievalism and uh, the reinterpretation of the Rumpelstiltskin folktale. Um, that's been our focus. So also will be nice to venture, venture outside of that, talking about the short story. Do you want to give your students a shout out? Hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Welcome to any of Vanessa's students who are tuning in. And as I mentioned, I am Erica. I am a third year PhD student in uh, the Literature Theory Culture Program. We're all three in that program in the English department. I'm teaching intro to fiction this semester with an awesome group of students. And so we have not started reading this book yet, but will be in a few weeks. Uh, and we're specifically going to be looking at the short story versus the novel as a way to talk about different elements uh, of fiction that show up in the two different versions of the text. So um, we're going to dive in. First, I want to give a, a super brief spoiler alert to anyone listening. We will be talking about both texts in full, including the conclusions. Our final segment will be on conclusions. Uh, so if you haven't read the entire book, uh, just know that we might be spoiling it. Uh, so listen accordingly. All right, so I'm going to start with a brief summary of specifically the short story and then how the novel differs a little bit. And then we'll dive into our three segments for today. So short, the, the short story version of Spinning Silver was published in an anthology called The Starlit Wood New Fairy Tales. And this anthology was published in 2017. And then the novel came out in 2018. And so we can read the short story as almost a precursor to the novel in which Novik is kind of working through her ideas in prepping for the novel. The interesting thing is I think all three of us here read the novel first and then went back to the short story. Uh, so we didn't necessarily read it in that order and I imagine most people listening uh, are doing the same thing. Um, 
But let's go through what the short story specifically covers. And so we have a story about Miriam who takes on the mon money lending business when her mother becomes ill from kind of the intense winter that they're experiencing. Her father isn't very good at the job. And so she takes over as a way to bring in more money and ensure that her mother gets the, the resources that she needs to become healthy again. Uh, she becomes quite good at it, Miriam does, but her parents aren't necessarily happy with her because the money lending process kind of requires that she become cold to the people around her. And so they're not actually excited that she has taken over the family business. Her grandfather, however, is happy uh, because he is also a money lender and he helps her grow the business. Uh, once she begins to become rich, the Staric king uh, of a different kingdom starts to notice that she is so good at what she does. And three times he has her change silver into gold to give back to him. She does this every time by using a jewelry maker named Isaac to make jewelry for the Duke and his daughter. Um, and then the Staric King says that if she's able to do all three tasks successfully, he will marry her. Uh, and so the final moment of the text, we see that Miriam actually is able to talk her way out of that situation uh, and convince the Staric Lord that she plays a better role for him as someone that will just change uh, money for him and not um, as his wife. And so the story ends there. In the novel version of this uh, story, one of the things that we're going to talk about is that there are numerous uh, other characters that also have chapters and sections of the text that follow their, uh, their stories, but specifically focused on Miriam and her storyline within the text, we see that the same things happen, but then in that final moment, Miriam is not able to talk her way out of the Stark Lord wanting her as his wife, and she is taken to the kingdom, becomes his wife, and then the rest of the story kind of follows their relationship and her navigating what her role is in the Stark Kingdom. Specifically, we see, uh, we eventually learn that the Stark King has taken Miriam in order to change silver into gold as a way of prolonging winter for his kingdom and sustaining his community and his people. She is not very happy about being there, has a plan uh, in place to have him murdered, but then once he's captured, she starts to feel bad. She starts to realize um, that he's doing this as a way of protecting his own people, and she starts to feel uh, bad for that, and she ends up releasing him. They save his kingdom together at the same time that they uh, kill, kill the demon? Expel him. Expel the demon. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Um, thank you for that, Vanessa. Wow. And it's, it's, yeah, not an exact science, is it? Exactly. Um, <laughs> and both kingdoms, the Sunlit Kingdom and the Stark Kingdom, are then uh, safe at the end, and Miriam decides to marry the Stark King uh, and remain in their kingdom, only visiting her family every so often. So we have two very different stories that are occurring here uh, in terms of Miriam's relationship with the Stark Kingdom. Uh, her relationship with the Stark King specifically. Uh, and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to have three different segments. Uh, the, the second two are going to talk about uh, the point of view, specifically the, the numerous narrators of the novel versus just the single point of view and the short story. And then our final 
uh, segment will talk about the conclusions, these vastly different endings that Miriam gets. But let's start with our first segment, segment number one, dun da da da, that's going to talk about uh, just the idea of what a short story is versus a novel. And so what I mean by this is the short story is about 25 pages, and when we come to a short story, we are specifically interested in, or a short story, let me put that a different way. Uh, a short story, because it's short, is expected to follow kind of one chain of related events uh, and then conclude, whereas a novel has 400, 500 pages to develop numerous storylines, numerous perspectives. And so one of the things that comes out of even this inherent uh, genre difference is that there are a lot more details in the novel than there are in the short story just inherently by uh, the length of the two texts. For reference, the novel spends about 120 pages covering what the short story does in 25 pages. So one of the things that shows up and the differences is um, who the Staric are and what relationship the Staric kingdom has to the text. The short story, we don't get a lot of interaction with the Staric kingdom. Uh, it's just really the Staric king coming in uh, and, and looking for the money being exchanged, but then he leaves and that's kind of the end of it. Whereas in the novel, Miriam gets to go and we learn more about these people. We see their land, we see their home. How did you both find um, specifically the, the Staric kingdom showing up in these two different texts? How did that uh, create, I guess, the reading experience that you have or maybe tailor the, the way that you felt about each of these stories? I am a massive fan of world building in in fantasy and in general, <laughs> but so I really enjoyed seeing the Steric Kingdom in more detail, and it did have a lot of intricacies, uh, just the moving walls and uh, the kind of under earth aspects I thought were really creative and imaginative, and we really got an idea of their perspectives and their culture, etc., that it wasn't just kind of that creepy, dangerous, looming force that I felt it was more in the short story. And uh, as Miriam comes to sympathize with uh, the, the Stark people, uh, we do too. And it just sticks with me in the novel at one point that she says um, something like, I'm, I'm the monster in the narrative of my village. Um, and you see her relating to the Starks as monsters kind of in that capacity. So kind of as outsiders. And it makes me think about her Jewish identity, if that's, if that's kind of where the connection's happening. And we're not able to get that in the short story. So that's one of my favorite differences, I would say, between the novel and the short story. Yeah, the short story, I felt um, quite detached from Miriam, the narrator, in comparison to how immersed I was in the novel, right? Um, because we not, we not only engage with her for like a literally longer time, but we also see her in different situations, especially in this weird kingdom. Um, and I thought that was... Uh, really interesting to see and it really helped me develop an emotional bond with her mm. more than the short story 
Absolutely. Because in the short story, a lot of emphasis is on her logical thinking, this smart businesswoman um, discovering her ability to make money, be an entrepreneur kind of. But in the novel, it's more like her interacting with way more characters, more in depth. And yes, that's the main difference that I noticed. I love both of these points that you're bringing up because I think they convey for us even subtle differences in who Miriam becomes when we have 25 pages versus 500 pages. So as Naram brought up in the, the short story version, we don't have her interactions with any of the people from the Star Kingdom besides the king himself. And so uh, I think it's totally right that the Stark remain mysterious. We don't have uh, an idea of who they are. And so in these moments, the story becomes Miriam is really good at what she's doing. She steps up in a time when her family really needs her in order to make money, to give her mother the things that she needs in order to not be sick anymore. Uh, and so we just see her progressively get better at this role that she has taken on. And then it pays off in this final moment where she's able to use the capabilities that she's developed to convince the Stark King that he doesn't actually wanna marry her. In the novel, all of that is in 120 pages, but then it's almost like the text is so beautifully long that we even kind of forget <laughs> about these initial moments as, such a, a big portion of the text is spent with her actually in the kingdom. And so, yes, her money lending business and kind of the business uh, capabilities that she built are still a very important part of her story. But she also develops and has to learn lessons about how to care for people and that she does care about people even beyond her family bubble that she had originally kind of thought uh, were the, the people that she was doing this for. She builds connections with the people in the Stark kingdom that she didn't expect. Did you have something to say, Vanessa? Absolutely. We see her create chosen family. She has close connections with obviously her, her parents, um, but also Wanda and uh, Irina, and, but also who used to be Steric servants. Uh, and that chosen element, I think, is so important. And um, also having parallels, again, with Jewish diaspora, just the idea of creating community in somewhat less conventional ways, or at least outside of the, um, the greater population. And I really enjoyed seeing her lose some of the coldness also, because... <laughs> We see that grow so much at the beginning of the novel that by the end, um, it's kind of chipped away. <laughs> I agree with that. I think that there was part of me reading this uh, coldness that she has to have as she's going and beating on people's doors and asking them <laughs> for money. There was part of me that was like, rock on, girl. Like, you do the things that you need to do mm -hmm. in order to provide for your family. Uh, but then it's also a touching narrative to have the moments where she has these people that have been, like you said, Vanessa, that have been monsters in her world. And she's able to realize even without actively wanting necessarily to enter into relationships with them, she's literally taken from her own, her home and planted in theirs. 
that she still builds connections without even meaning to necessarily and has these really uh, touching connections. And so we definitely see lessons that she's learning even about her own capabilities, I think, as the text progresses. And she is such a survivalist. So I'm not putting her down for being cold at the beginning. I too, like, go girl. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. But I love that. I mean, so much of the novel is about survival for so many, di- for all of the characters, but yeah. for there to be collaboration in, in survival uh, is one of the most powerful messages I, I took. Yeah, I agree. I also think um, in the novel version, there's more room for other characters too, not just Miriam, to show other aspects of themselves, especially the Star King. Mm. I thought it was hilarious how he hates um, having to consummate their marriage and he really doesn't want to. Um, That's just not in the story at all, right? Um, And I thought the dynamic between him and Miriam was really interesting. And um, there's an interesting move uh, that makes the interesting move of making the villain figure kind of not conventional, um, right? So also makes me think about, made us think about masculinity as well, the expectations of a king, right? Um, So yeah, really, the novel was much more interesting in that aspect. So I think that this might be a good place to segue into our second segment, uh, which I think will be my favorite. Um, Because even as I'm listening to what you're saying, Naram, I'm like, and this plot line or this storyline doesn't just happen with Miriam. Like it happens elsewhere as well. Um, So our second segment is going to be specifically on the differences in the short story, which Justice told from first person from Miriam's perspective, versus um, the novel, which by the end of it, we have six narrators, uh, which is a lot of narrators. Um, And the story kind of builds them, they progress. And so really, and correct me both, you both, if you think differently, but I feel like the main three and maybe the three that we'll focus on the most are Miriam, Wanda, and Irina. They are the three that are established at the beginning. Um, There are three powerful and impressive women and the novel does the work of kind of um, interweaving their stories in really interesting and intricate ways. And so um, I think this is a great segue to just open up the conversation about uh, how are the stories different when we're just focused on Miriam? We've already established that Miriam's character and her trajectory differs uh, just based on how she interacts with the Stark Kingdom. But how does the story differ when we have just Miriam's perspective versus the perspectives of three women whose lives are interrelated in ways uh, that are really kind of beautiful and interesting? How does that change the story? (laughs) Well, it changes everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Like the whole message is different. Um, I don't speak for everyone, but the short story, I feel like the message was um, just this female character finding some sort of agency in this world that is very sexist and um, anti-Jew <laughs> yeah. um, and capitalist, right? 
but in the novel, the message is um, friendship and helping each other out. So it was really interesting to see that the message itself changed so much from the first version to the second version, which made me think about the actual original, which is Rumpelstiltskin. Mm. The fairy tale is a fairy tale or folk tale. I don't know. But I mean, obviously, uh, the title itself and the main concept, spinning silver or hay into gold, is from that story. And I'm not sure what to make of the differences between that and the short story and the novel. Right. It's interesting. It makes me think. There are so many different layers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vanessa, what about you? Well, now I'm thinking about Rumpelstiltskin. Hay <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> into gold and all of that. But the, yeah. the three different women uh, negotiating unsafe domestic spheres, uh, forced marriages, um, I think bringing up these questions of things like consent mm -hmm. and as uh, Naram brought up obviously agency it's really interesting to get to see the different nuances or, or different responses to limitations uh, caused by I mean oppressive husbands or fathers etc um, and I found it particularly interesting to look at someone like Irina, who is Sarina, mm -hmm. <laughs> she's still having to navigate even uh, just as terrifying circumstances as as Wanda and Miriam. And um, yeah, I think as Erica mentioned, there these narr narrations are, are they're um, getting to see from the first person is so much more. It allows so many more insights because we actually right. see the characters have the same thoughts sometimes. Exactly. Right, right. Remember when Irina and Miriam see each other and notice that they have something in common? From both right. perspectives, you see that both of them felt that resonance. Yes. Yes. So I love this idea of um, similar circumstances that are coming up in all of their stories. Well, I don't love the circumstances that are coming up, which are uh, Thanks for clarifying, not great. <laughs> Clarification. Uh, I don't love the fact that they all are having to navigate situations in which uh, external circumstances are trying to force marriages on them that they are not particularly excited about. However, the idea that we have stories told from each of their points of view as they are navigating these situations, as well as how uh, we have such a wide span of socioeconomic uh, identities. So we have Wanda, who is working class. We have Miriam, who maybe would be classified as middle class. And then we have uh, Irina, obviously, who enters into a very lucrative marriage and is like top dog in the kingdom, just like in a very impressive um, position. And yet still, despite these vast differences in uh, their identities, their circumstances, their stories, they are all experiencing uh, confining mm -hmm. environments that are trying to uh, put them in marriage <clears throat> and don't want to 
Fian with Wanda, she ends up obviously not getting married and um, kind of being adopted eventually into Miriam's family. But with Miriam and Irina, they are eventually married. And so I think in all three, we get to see how they are adapting and how they are still trying to carve out space for um, their own desires and needs and agency even within the circumstances that they find themselves in which they don't necessarily always have uh, control over. So I like that the stories are so widely different at the same time that they are so um, so similar maybe is what I'm trying to say. Um, let me ask about the moments that the stories overlap, like the stories where we find that Wanda and Miriam's stories are so intricately connected. We have Wanda who literally realizes that her ability to leave her family home and work with Miriam's family relies on the success of Miriam's business. And then Miriam's ability to exchange the Staric silver into gold relies on Irina's father purchasing the things as her dowry for her eventual marriage. So the stories, and they become even more uh, intricate, right? We see in the end, all three of them are working together to kind of pit the two husbands against each other. Um, and Irina helps Wanda out of her circumstance with the death of her father. So all of them are, are overlapping. Did you love, did you love that as much as me? I thought it was beautiful. <laughs> I, I liked it because for one, I thought, yeah, it's beautiful, but at the same time, doesn't romanticize female friendship. Yeah. It's really easy to do. Like, I see a woman, <laughs> I like her because she's a woman. No, it's not that. I have my interests and her interests. And it's when I see that my interests are aligned with her interests that I help her and she helps me. Mm. And that's how a really constructive friendship, or maybe friendship's not the word, a really constructive bond. Um, is set up and we're able to help each other move forward right so I mean we don't see in the novel ever Miriam or Wanda becoming best friends <laughs> it's not that right um, they don't connect on an emotional um, level it's just I understand your situation you understand mine let's help each other out so yeah yeah I thought that was really smart and well done I think, Vanessa, I, I want to let you talk in just a second, but I want to also go back to the point that I think you made in connection with what Nara made about the moment where Miriam brings the crown to Irina and she's watching Irina put the crown on. Right, and yeah. as she's leaving, she says something along the lines of, um, like, I wonder if she has as much um, power yeah. in her situation as I do or, like, lack of power. Like, she's basically ruminating on how their their circumstances right. or their lack of power in those two right. situations. But since she never does get to interact with her, in the story it ends with her thinking, oh, she looks happy. Oh, in so, the short yeah. story. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, so in the short the story we moment. have, they, they really don't interact. We have Wanda yeah. and Irina who are just kind of minor figures uh, mm -hmm. in the text and we don't have um, any of I think the word I'm looking for is like repetition. Like I think that the idea of numerous uh, points of view, numerous narrators that are 
telling different versions of the same story like repeats the idea that oh this isn't a single experience this isn't a single woman who has been confined within her marriage circumstances this is repeated again and again and again and so it builds this idea of it not being a singular experience but almost like a trend amongst women across uh socioeconomic class Vanessa I I think I cut you off so why don't you chime in here well just to add on to what you're saying just to have a broader theme then of female empowerment having these linking stories really lends to that um what i when you were initially talking what i first thought of wasn't just how the women lift each other up in more concrete ways um but ideologically essentially like i think about wanda this really stuck with me in the novel when wanda is going to be essentially sold in exchange for regular liquor for her father. She thinks about how Miriam can't help her in this situation. She literally, right before she says no, and there's so much emphasis on that no, and it comes up again and again and again um, from other people's no's being so important. But what inspires her in that moment is Miriam. And I just think that idea of female empowerment isn't kind of a role model yeah yeah in in more subconscious ways yeah yeah I agree we also have in both circumstances Miriam references both Wanda and Irina as sisters too Mm -hmm. and so I think uh I think you're right Naram that we don't see a lot of Uh, emotional maybe development Mm -hmm. in terms of connections between the two sets of women. I'm thinking here of Wanda and Miriam and then Miriam and Irina because their lives are so busy that they don't have time to just sit around and drink tea and gossip about all the things that are happening in their lives. They have so much going on. And so the story isn't devoted to like heavily building these relationships. But we also have a moment where Miriam looks at Irina and goes, I feel like we're sisters because our situations Mm. are so similar. And then at the end, when I'm talking about the novel here specifically, when Miriam comes back from the Star Kingdom and sees how her parents and Wanda and her siblings have kind of built this uh, what was the the phrase that you used at the beginning, Vanessa, about families that just kind of develop in unconventional ways? Like chosen families? <laughs> chosen families, I like that. And we see it in all three yeah. stories um, in terms of like Irina and her nurse as well being like a, a chosen family. So we see this idea of chosen families too. Anyways, Miriam comes home and sees this built family of her parents and then Wanda and her siblings. And she calls Wanda a sister and she calls Sergi and Stefan brothers. And so even if we don't have this understanding that uh, we haven't had the space to see their relationships develop, we still know that there is a deep bond. I like that word that you, you use in our bond. They rely on each other. Uh, they have each other's backs and they realize that their success, so Miriam's success, Wanda's success, Irina's success, all depend on the success yeah. of the other women. Um, and so their stories, have, they're, they're so beautifully mm. connected. Yeah, I think it just starts from that recognition that my situation is hinged on yours. And, yeah. then, it, and then it leads to this emotional, more emotional connection. Well, it's nice to have less of an ugly bond. There's a lot of bonds 
and restraints in this text having more positive bonds. I mean, because there was this one moment when Miriam was jealous of her cousin. Um, I forgot her name. But Asha? I don't know. But her female cousin. Yeah. And it didn't really develop that emotion. I mean, so yeah. So she's no ugliness in the yeah. short story. In the in the novel. Oh, in the novel. Yeah. Yeah. And the short story, so for clarification, uh, one of the differences between the short story and the novel is the role that Isaac plays in the two texts. Right. Uh, Isaac is the jewelry maker that Miriam uses. In the short story, we get kind of subtle indications that mm -hmm. Miriam herself might be developing feelings for uh, Isaac. And then at the end, after she has navigated her way out of marrying the Staric King, um, she makes the comment that Isaac continues to kind of visit as a way of maybe suggesting to mm -hmm. us that a relationship is budding between the two of them. In the novel, that's completely different. Uh, Isaac is never available as a, a partner for Miriam. Instead, Isaac is interested in Miriam's cousin and they end up getting married, which the wedding is where kind of mm -hmm. the big climactic moment of the text happens. Uh, I do think it's interesting, and maybe this can be our way of um, maneuvering into the final segment, which is uh, in both versions, Isaac is a way of um, thinking about what marriage means for Miriam, because in one, he's a potential suitor, and the other, we see that she's not, in the novel, she's not uh, interested in Isaac, but she's interested in the life that Isaac and her cousin are able to have. She says, I'm not interested, but I'm jealous that she gets to have uh, some semblance of a normal life in ways that I won't now that I've kind of entered into this financial deal with the Starrett King. Uh, so for our third segment, our final segment, Let's talk about the conclusions uh, of these two stories. So um, obviously in the short story version, we get the, um, the, we get Miriam who's able to talk her way basically out of marrying the Stark King. He realizes that it's more beneficial to keep her as someone who just makes money for him, uh, who changes silver to gold instead of actually marrying her in the novel, she has no such capabilities. Instead, she is taken off in his fancy sleigh uh, to this kingdom and is used uh, to make more money uh, and spends a lot of time in the, the text just kind of navigating like what her life looks like there. So very different stories. Oh, and all of that to say, in the ending of the novel, we have like a a remarriage almost, like uh, Miriam and the Stark King actually do end up together after Miriam has put so much emphasis on making it back to her family and wanting to return back to her normal life. We see them decide to enter into an actual, maybe healthier partners partnership together in the, the novel's conclusion. Vastly different experiences that Naram Naram, I'm famous. <laughs> Am I on I'm your mind? To uh, put you in Do you want to go experience Starlight Kingdom? Me. Miriam has such vastly different experiences. What did you make of these two different conclusions? 
Who wants to go first? Naram, you have an insider's view being a a doppelganger of Miriam. (laughs) Hilarious. Um, Okay, so I found um, both endings quite surprising. The novel's ending was more surprising for me. Um, But after the initial shock, after sitting down and thinking about it, it did make sense, both of them. So I think what um, Novik, the author of the two texts, is trying to do is find a balance between um, showing her female character's agency while also reminding readers that this is an oppressive system in which within this female character, regardless of how much agency she has, is still oppressed. Mm-hmm. There are limits. Uh, so in the short story, it ends with her, yeah, refusing the role of wife, but taking on the role of banker <laughs> and just like literally forever being um, the Starry King's servant, kind of, because yeah. he's going to keep giving her silver. She um, ends the story with saying, ever so often, <laughs> this bag of silver comes up and I have to change it, right? So um, it just, it was a powerful ending in that sense. It, it, in the sense that it reminded me of, yeah, this is capitalist system. And there is this boss that's controlling Miriam, um, although she has more agency than when she first started out. <clears throat> and then in the novel, um, we've already seen her by the end become attached to the people in the Ice Kingdom, Ice Kingdom? <laughs> in the winter world. <laughs> the winter world. Yeah, yeah. So uh, to, for her to just give that up doesn't make sense. We know that she's a good person by now. Um, so logically, and also she has had time to really know the Stark King. So she's acting based on what she knows. Uh, so... Um, the contrast between the first marriage and the second marriage um, shows that Miriam has obtained a, uh, obtained a level of agency that is greater than what she had, and she's acting based on this uh, belief in herself as a potentially good leader who can help people who need her help. Mm. So yeah, when I think about it, it does make sense. <laughs> I don't love it. but it's just me because I don't like romance in novels so (laughs) yes I am fascinated by what you said because I on like a surface level think that the short story ending is more satisfying because she isn't forced into a marriage that she doesn't want to be in in the first place but then you like flip that on its head for me when you reminded us that she's not free like she's still in this (laughs) weird position where she has to turn money into gold for the start king basically whenever he wants so it's not like she is completely Mm -hmm. just doing whatever she wants and so that was a good reminder to me too that like the satisfaction that i get purely from her um escaping this marriage uh that in the first place she doesn't want in either text she doesn't want it and she's successfully able to get out of it 
um, is actually a little bit more complicated. Like she's still in a subservient relationship to the yeah. Sarah King, even if it doesn't come with kind of the extra responsibilities of being his wife and the queen of this uh, kingdom. Vanessa, what do you think? I thought of the short story as a flipping of the table. <laughs> I think I read it pretty optimistically. And partly it's because of the conversation with her grandfather where he says, you know, marrying a king is not really the worst thing. Think about it. And she says specifically that conversation led to him like, quote, making it her choice. Mm -hmm. And so even if there is this somewhat, I mean, yeah, no, it, there is forced labor involved. But she's already, <laughs> she's already proved, though, that she can spin it to her advantage. She made money off of every one of those turn yeah. silver into gold yeah. um, situations. So she's absolutely able to handle it and handle it very well. And Novik goes, no, no marriage at the end. Um, my character's superpower is her money lending. A Jewish character's <laughs> superpower is her ability to money lend instead of that being a negative thing with a little, like, monstrous, like, he is supposed to be monstrous, right, Rumpelstiltskin? So to me, I read it like a good old subversion, and I love a good old subversion. <laughs> and the final, or excuse me, the, the novel's ending, I didn't feel like lacked subversive elements, uh, but they were more, it was more tempered. Mm. And I guess I still kind of am on the fence a little bit about how I feel about that. Um, but one thing I loved, and I did bring this up, is the idea of consent be running through the entire novel. So uh, Wanda saying no. Even the, the Stark King says no when the fire demon tries to get his name. And Sergei hears, or no, it's Stepan. He, when he hears this, sorry, just everyone connects by this refusal of oppression in really specific moments. But there's also really important moments of consent. Mm. And that's between Miriam and her bonds women and the bonds man, like in, in the Steric Kingdom. Um, I could list, there's a lot of situations that I feel that way. Um, but at the very end, the fact that the Steric King won't even allow her to thank him because he does not want to put her under any bonds uh, that aren't her choice. And so this really delicate nuanced attention to consent I think is is what makes the novel still satisfying to me even though I yes I love I love the unexpected <laughs> fractured fairy tale but but it, I still did feel satisfaction from from the novel so I actually focused on something completely different um but equally subtly satisfying. Uh, I think... Oh, we'll see. <laughs> <If it's> equally. <laughs> um, I was trying to make sense of, like, what does this marriage mean at the end of the novel? What does it mean that we build up... There's obviously tension between Miriam and the Stark King throughout the entire text, and she doesn't want to be there, and she wants to 
escape to the extent that she literally has his murder planned. And then we finally build up to this moment and it's like three pages left and she is headed home and it's like homecoming, like something that we're all waiting for. And then we have the moment where she gets home and he asks for her hand and she accepts and they get married again. Um, It's the moments leading up to that that I think are super important. And so we have a time after the big battle in the mountain where Miriam stops the the fire demon uh, and saves the Staric Kingdom. After that happens, there's still a season where she's there waiting for the road to open for her to go back home, where we see her adopting the skills that she used in money, money lending within the Staric Kingdom. And so she's using her ability to keep good records as a way of going around and checking on people and planting things in the Star Kingdom as a way of like rebuilding after this big, um, this big battle that happens. And so I read this marriage as a way of Miriam realizing where her talents and her abilities are most uh, welcomed and, and suited for the environment because I know that she is super strong and capable in the moments that she starts the money lending uh, process in her village and is knocking on people's doors. But we get the idea, at least I get the idea, that she's bitter that they're bitter at her uh, because she's doing her job and she's doing what she needs to do and yet people hate her for it. And so I think she becomes bitter at least that this is what she has to do and nobody appreciates that she's good at it and that she's like sustaining her family literally. Whereas in the Stark Kingdom, she realizes that the literally the same skills are sustaining people that they are respecting her, that they're appreciating her. And so I think once she has the moment of release that like knowing that her parents are being taken care of, that she can be gone and Wanda and her siblings can still care for her parents in a way that she had originally done. I think she is finding the environment where her skills are um, very much valued in a way that they wouldn't have been if she had returned to a version of her past life. So I think it, is, it isn't as like overtly subversive as like, oh, she doesn't marry the man who is trying to force something on her, but it's still a beautiful way of putting Miriam in a place where um, like she's able to be really good at something and to be really helpful in ways that she maybe even wasn't in the first portion of the story. Does that make sense? I think, I think the, you mentioned the, this whole thing happens in three pages. It's really quick. It's really quick, which is really, which goes, totally against how the novel's been paced so far, especially in the world-making process. It's really slow. Um, so I think this pacing does the important work of making us, uh, <laughs> you know, think, wait, what, ha- what just happened? And then, and then we start to process, okay, why does she make this choice? Um, and the pacing, I think it signals that it's an obvious choice. It's an easy, kind of easy choice to make for Miriam. Um, and we have to figure it out why it's kind of the best choice you can make, why it makes, why it makes sense to her, although it might, might, may, might not make sense to us. 
So yeah, I think the pacing is the most important uh, formal device that makes its readers think at the end. I like that. I like that a lot. I think your reading is totally irrelevant to consent still, Erica, because she <laughs> chooses to go <laughs> to the Stark Kingdom. Just, just a comment. Um, and, but I do agree the pace. Oh, sorry, Erica, you get to see that. No, 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 you go. You go. I do agree that the pacing is interesting because I almost think uh, Novik gets to eat her or have her cake and eat it too, in a way, because yeah. like short story endings are usually in your face, surprising. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You know, something big yeah. happens. And she kind of does get to do that to us a little bit in the, at the very end of the novel by pacing it that way. I don't know if you'd agree. Erica, you agree. That's oh, a really good point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it reads kind of like a short story towards the end. It's because so, so much fast. happens in such uh, yeah. a combined... No explanation. We don't get any, like, soliloquy from her. Like, thinking about what are my choices? What can I do? Not it much happens. About. And I it like your happens, point, Aram, yeah. that uh, we, as the readers, are then left to figure out how why it happened and also how we feel about it so it's almost like the text is encouraging us to confront why or why not we feel comfortable with them the marriage at the end the remarriage the second marriage however we want to think about it uh i like that as a way of like it happens so fast that then the tables are turned for us to go okay what does that mean uh now that we have 500 years of Miriam's development, her understanding of who she is and her relationship to the Stark Kingdom. To go full circle back to our first segment, (laughs) uh, we have all of this development and this kind of changing relationship that she has with the Stark Kingdom over the span of a novel that then to have such a rapid ending, we have to do the work of going, okay, how does that fit into what we know about her and also how she's developed over the span of the text? I like that a lot. I think all three of us did it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think all three of us were like, initially, what? <laughs> and then, okay, why? So you're saying, Naram, that our interpretations are interrelated. Our stories are interrelated. <gasps> <laughs> I love Mind it. Mind is blown. I love it. Well, I think, <laughs> friends, that that is a good place for us to conclude our talk today. Um, so I want to say thank you to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation. I want to say thank you to Naram and Vanessa for joining. It was lovely to have you both and your experience with the text in very different ways. Uh, it's been lovely chatting with you both. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having thank you us. For having of us. course. Uh, and then one final note. So we have uh, lots of virtual Big Read events that will be coming your way this fall. So check out our Big Read website for other events that we will be doing. In particular, we will have a second podcast that will drop in the month of October uh, on language as magic in the the tale. So stay tuned for that. And uh, thanks again for tuning in. Bye, everyone. Bye.